All right. Super excited on this, uh, this issue episode, River of Colonies, about the, the world of tiny payments to have Cyprian, formerly known as Vin Armani. And um, he, he hit me up after the first video and was like, hey, I, I dig what you're talking about. And he and, he and I have talked about other things uh, you'll see on this YouTube channel several times. Always a fascinating guy to follow for a variety of reasons. But um, he mentioned a couple things specifically, some of the stuff he's worked on and timing payments, which I want to talk about. And then payment channels, which I know quite little about. Um, I know a little bit, but not very much. Um, and so I want to get into to a lot of that. But I, I want to start, Cyprian, with, I, I know like, you know, your history with being interested in Bitcoin as a, as a free market money and that kind of thing. When did the micropayments attribute of Bitcoin start to get you excited as separate from just the, hey, this is an alternative off the books cash? Weirdly enough, it was the first thing that got me excited. Ah. So it was the first thing that I was doing in terms of development. So in, so I got involved in Bitcoin, bought my first Bitcoin in 2012 um, at 15 bucks. And then it went to a thousand. I sort of, I was like, this makes no sense, <laughs> you know, like 60 X in, in 11 months. And I was like, okay, you know, sold, sold most of it off. I and, waited until 1200 to have that. Right. Moment of, okay. This is insane. I got to say, this is crazy. I got to sell. I've made money doing nothing. You know, I think anybody, anybody who didn't do that at that point, like people, I, I tell people that and the people who like have come in later, they're like, Oh, you just should have held it. And it's like, no dude, if you were there at that time, no, my, it had never been at a thousand dollars. It had never, like when I got it, it like that was the high. 50, yeah. It was like 15 bucks was the high it had ever been at. It's like, bro, if you get something and you 60 X in 11 months and you don't, <laughs> and you don't sell it all like at that moment, you're an idiot because you gotta be looking like, well, this is too good to be true. Right. And, and, and it was like, it crashed after that. Right. Again, I think it went back down to like, 120 or 150, something like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, but in 2014, I was actually, and it was sort of sparked by a conversation that I had, I was in Vegas and it was sparked by a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who was just starting to try to put together um, like video game based casino machines. So kind of skill-based gaming and was having a really hard time with the way that the regulations went. There's like three or four big companies, IGT, Bally, and some other ones that make like all the slot machines and all of that in the, the entire world. And they're all based in Vegas, right? So powerhouse, these are powerhouse companies. By the airport, they have these gigantic buildings where they manufacture corporate offices the whole night. And I thought it was really interesting. And, and you know, we spent, he, he was the owner of a, a really cool video game bar called insert coins in downtown Chris Laporte is his name super cool brilliant guy and so we would sit you know maybe twice a month we would sit on a day that the bar was closed and he would just sit behind the bar and like me and a couple other people and he just service drinks we're in this empty nightclub you know what I mean and we're just drinking and he's telling us about this and um it, it really was sparked because he at one point he showed us the inside of one of these games like a slot machine and the mm -hmm. ones that are pretty advanced, like just came out, he opened it up, dude, it was like 1980s video game inside. <laughs> like, the technology 
inside. There's like a hamster running around with a cheese. Giant, giant boards. I was like, what is the, this is crazy. You could be running this off of like a laptop and they've got all this stuff. And he's like, no man, all the patents, all the systems, they're all from the eighties and they've got this lock on it. So they just have never changed it. There's been no reason to change it. And so I was like, whoa, well, so that got me thinking like, well, what could you do? And so I just took a look at all the things. I ended up building some gaming machines that interacted with phones and with the bill collectors, all out of like little Arduinos and all like uh, Raspberry Pis. But for the accounting, I said, well, let me relook at this Bitcoin thing. Because one of the big account, they have an accounting system called SaaS, not software as a service. I forget, secure accounting system, I think it's called, that's used worldwide in every casino. And it's like clunk, it's, it works perfectly, but it's like old, but it's got all these patents on it. And so it was actually in looking at how Bitcoin could solve this in 2014 that I started looking at, I didn't, I, colored coins were just kind of starting as a thing, yep. but I was like, oh, and now this is like, everybody does this now, right? But I was like, oh, I could create these tiny, tiny payments that had a certain amount. So like, let's say I could make, you know, 546 Satoshis or whatever, or let's say I made a thousand Satoshis and a thousand Satoshis could be, you know, equal to $1. And so I was like, oh, I could like label these and send them. And at the time you could get transactions put on the blockchain with no fee. In 2014, when I was first starting to do this, like zero fee transactions, no problem. And so that was actually how I did my initial accounting system for these games was it was all on the blockchain, no fees, and every dollar that was going in, I was recording as a thousand Satoshis. Interesting. Interesting. Right? So you were and, using Satoshis as a, an accounting system, irregardless of what the trading price was out correct. there in the world. Yeah, correct. yeah. Very interesting. Correct. Yeah. So, and because I knew, basically what I knew was since it was no fee, I had like, you know, so I said, okay, well, here's the pool of money, let's say. Like, this is, the, this is the pool of money that I start with. I only need to represent that in Satoshis. So even if I had, you know, a, a, a million dollars, that's only going to be represented by one Bitcoin at the time. I only need one Bitcoin's worth of Satoshis to represent that, right? Let's say, or less, less than that, thousand, thousand, million, not even, 0. 0.001 Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So... So yeah, so from literally from the beginning, this has been something that was in the beginning of me even dabbling in the, the tech. This has been something that's been front of mind. And then it's been something that I've used. I mean, I use it in I've used it in every single project that I've that I've done from either micro or tiny payments. And in that in that gaming uh, idea you were playing around with, I don't know if you ever brought it to to market in any way. I know it's a heavily regulated. Oh, I've got it. I've, I've got a I've got a video of the demo that I'll, I'll happily it's unlisted on my channel, but I'll happily send it to you. So, you okay. can check it out. Right, yeah. Yeah. it's I think you'll like it. It's cool. Was the idea from the user experience that they're having a completely fiat user experience and they don't know or care that you're using that underneath? Got Correct. it. Yep. yep. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that that's something that took me a while to, to understand, like I was never opposed to it. It always sounded cool, but a while to understand how powerful 
as an adoption mechanism. So, you know, coming into Bitcoin is like, hey, free market money, all this sort of ideological stuff. And in the early days, there was a little bit of truth to the, you know, get a merchant to put a we accept Bitcoin sticker up and accept it. And it actually, this is great. Adoption is going, and now Microsoft and now Twitch and now, and, and then de-adoption happened when the blocks got full and all these other things. And, and who knows whether that strategy could have, you know, worked anyway. But the idea of like convincing people to use Bitcoin for something they can just as easily use fiat for, um, it's like, okay, well, what can Bitcoin do that fiat literally can't do? You just could never build it on there. And focus on those use cases. And then the consumer, whether they have a Bitcoin or a fiat experience, that's, that's secondary. That's whatever they need for their market. But let's try to, and like, it took me a while to, to, to see that. And at first that felt like a letdown. It was like, well, that's yeah. like, okay. So now it's like, you've narrowed the scope to this little, you know, tech. But the more I started to think through the implications that I kind of see it as like, a process. And if you have anything new that you're bringing into the world and you're trying to convince people to, to use it, if it can't help them solve a problem 10 times better than whatever else they're using, then they're not going to adopt it. And so starting with that, and then later, if it becomes so widely used to solve problems fiat can't solve, then it can start to be the preferred choice to solve problems that fiat can solve, but it only solves them, you know, it solves them one X or two X better or whatever. Um, so anyway, it's a great, I think dude, a there's a great video that's been sort of making the rounds. The first person who shared it, I've now shared it a ton of times, but the per first person who shared it, and it wasn't except for a couple of months ago, was uh, Amari Sachet, the Bitcoin ABC lead dev, right? So kind of an enemy of the BSV people and now the BCH people, but a definitely a legendary Bitcoin. Guys that just, he just, uh, he's blunt and speaks his mind and makes yes. enemies. <laughs> I don't yeah, know him and, personally. But. And I, I consider him a friend, but he and I have been on the outs very, very many times just because <laughs> of that, you know, but but all, all all respect, you know what I mean? But he shared it and it's um it's Jeff Bezos and it's somebody interviewing him. They must have just caught him outside of some like little conference or something like that. And it's in 1997 and it's short. It's like five minutes, but this guy is talking to him about like, why am why are you doing this project that you're doing this amazon thing and at the time it's only books and and he says okay so what's the what are you doing why did you choose to do this who are you like first off he's like who are you what do you do so you could tell this is like really early right yeah. So, yeah. so what he says that's so interesting is that he says you know he's like well why books why did you choose books and he says well, the reason that we chose books is because of all of, let's say, the product categories in the world. There are more individual items of books than there are anything else. Hmm. He said there's there's millions of individual SKUs, basically, yep. right? It, there's no other product category that has that. And he said the number of SKUs that there are means that if you're a business that wants to sell every single book printed, you cannot do it in a brick and mortar. Yep. It is impossible to do. He says the only way that you could have a bookstore that sells every single book is to do it online. And he specifically says there, he says, if you, that's the reason we chose books, that's the reason we're doing this business, why we chose to do it online. But he even specifically says, he says, if you can do something in the established way, 
you should do it in the established way. Yeah, yeah. That's something so many people in Bitcoin yep. need to hear and take to heart. And like that realization that you're saying, you got to understand that was Jeff Bezos's realization. So you want to model yourself on success, go back, watch that video, listen to the principles that he's saying, and then see if you're living them out in Bitcoin. Yeah. It's like, do you want to be a, do you want to be a, a missionary or maybe that's even too complimentary um, or a problem solver, right? Uh, so the missionary is like, Hey, you know, do me a favor, do this. Cause it's the right thing. Just, I'm trying to convince you that you should feel bad if you don't do this. Now we've seen People will do that for a lot of things in the world. They're usually bad things, but it's kind of a losery mentality. You always have to be begging people. You're always yep. in the weak position. You're never in the strong position where you're like, hey, I can solve this problem better than the next guy. You can ignore me if you want to. I don't care. Your loss, right? Instead of like, please, don't you understand how we're changing the world? You know? Um, okay. So, so you played around with some of these games. At what point did, and if I'm skipping something else that you want to, want to cover, please fill, fill it in. At what point did Cointext enter <clears throat> the equation? And I, I'd really like to, to learn more about the genesis of that. And then what happened with it ultimately? If you see it as like it didn't work or I don't know the status of it currently. Oh, it's got an interesting story about, yeah. what, about what happened. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. love the origin plus, and then the postmortem. Sure, sure. I don't think that I've done this so that's kind of interesting. I, uh, I don't think that I've told this story, the sort of the whole thing publicly. And it, it's, actually, it's actually relatively short, but it goes to this exact idea. So I, it was, okay. So we start with 2014. Here I have this application. Why does the application work? Zero fees to get my transactions on. Now, mind you, they wouldn't get in every block. So I, I wasn't guaranteed that it would get in every block, but I was guaranteed that about at least every five blocks. So at least within the hour, it would get out of the mempool and in if I had no fees at the time. And for the application that I had, perfectly fine. That was I your backend accounting mempool. system as long, yeah. Cool, no problem, totally worth it. No fees, like this is totally worth it for me. Um, so, you know, I worked, I worked on that and it was sort of just like hobby and I was sort of, you know, just, Futzing around, and at that time, some new libraries were coming out that made things really easy with the application stuff. Vitalik, sort of in the right after I had built what I built, uh, Vitalik released this kind of classic Python library called Pi Bitcoin Tools that a lot of the industry has been built on. So Vitalik at this time is kind of like still in Bitcoin, you know. To it, so that tells you how 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 far back this is. Um, but then it was about, you know, it was six to seven months later in 2015, that the fees started to go up, like that the block started to get full. This is when like the block size debate began. And I just looked at it and I said, ah, uh, well, there goes those applications, yep. right? Like there goes those app. And at the time I was on a TV show, I was investing in these other businesses. I was doing all of these things. I had things going on in my life. That was a cool application that I was kind of playing with. I certainly wasn't in need of money. I wasn't really thinking, oh, I'm going to start a Bitcoin business in 2014 or anything. It was just, I had time on my hands. I'm a software developer. I got an itch. I scratched it, right? And I, I, I got to interject really quickly. I don't yeah. want to let you go, but this might be a bad analogy and I might be stretching, okay. but I think people don't, many people don't appreciate because you can't prove a counterfactual, but they don't appreciate right. the massive opportunity cost 
when those blocks got full and those fees went up, even to a few pennies, what could have been tinkered with and built and what ended up getting killed? It, it would be like in that Jeff Bezos story you gave, he's building a, a, a long tail business that relies on the power of the long tail. And so he goes into a market that has the longest tail of all. You got all these books way, way out here and the stores are only selling the ones in the fat part, right? It'd be like him early on trying to create that business and compete with brick and mortars by doing what they can't do because he's using tech that they don't have. And then saying, I'm going to make some some code decisions that make it so that we can only serve up books that are in the top 1000 bestsellers. Exactly. And then you're like, well, then what the, how are you going to beat the status quo? They already do that. Why would you take away your biggest advantage? Like taking away the ultra low fee ability, all those long tail use cases that Fiat simply can't do and can't even try to compete with are gone and nobody, and everybody stopped working on them. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, well, Let's, let's expand on that a little bit, because if you are to think of the logical progression of, so let's take the, the, what I was talking about in the way that I was talking about using it, right? Using it for accounting. And if you take that proposition and you do a logical progression out, what you wind up with, if you just let it organically go, what you actually wind up with is you wind up with business. If I was to start a business like that, the logical progression says, even just where the status quo was when I was building it, I end up contacting a miner and paying them for block space. Yeah. And that's what BSV is doing. Yeah, miner APIs, so you, yeah. Right, and so, but there's no, the, the, the issue is like, okay, yes, you know, you have that capability, but it's a little bit of the cart before the horse because it's like, who is asking for this? Who's got a profitable business? Yeah. Yep. That's, that's the issue. Yep. It's like, yes, wonderful, great, miners can do this, but miners could always do this. But the problem is who's asking for it? If I would have been able to build that out and others like me would have been able to build these things out and it organically got a little bit more, a little bit more. And then they were like, ah, innovation's not there. Increase the block size just a little bit here. Increase the block size. Just The block size increase is to give us the innovation that's going to allow these use cases, that's going to allow the future business for the miners. Yeah. It was the the unseen. In order. The unseen things that were being worked on and could be worked on in the future that suffered. And it was like, well, nobody sees them. They don't really have a voice. And it was was people like you who were like, oh, okay, well, I didn't need to do that project anyway. It was just fun. I was tinkering, you know? So so when you you shelved that, were you still interested in working with Bitcoin at that time, or did you take a break from it for a while? I, I honestly, I thought, weirdly enough, I just, I counted Bitcoin out. I said, Bitcoin's done because, because those decisions were being made. The and resolution if anybody, of the Bitcoin experiment. <laughs> anybody, if it, for people who follow me, they know that I'm all about, like, I'm going to bet on the pattern. I've studied history, I, and there are good decisions and bad decisions, and people who make bad decisions rarely make one bad decision. People who are bad decision makers, especially when they're really bad, like that one was really bad, with like a complete lack of foresight. It's not like people who have wonderful foresight will make like tragically bad decisions that, that show evidence of lack of foresight, and then like all the rest of them are fine. That's actually not what you bet on. Hmm. 
if you encounter somebody who's who makes a terribly bad decision based on lack of foresight, that lack of foresight is a property of the person or the organization. So you should bet that that lack of foresight is going to make bad decisions in the future. So this is some tough love today, man. You're giving it, you're bringing the hard stuff and nobody wants to hear that, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Like, and I'm not, so for me, I'm going to bet on, and, and look, people make poor decisions where, where they have a lack of foresight, but then the people who, who have good foresight will be like, Ooh, that was a bad decision. Okay. Let's see what we can do to reverse or mitigate that. They don't, add a narrative on top of it that justifies and rationalizes their bad decision and says why no it wasn't actually a lack of foresight no there's in the you just don't understand the future and it's like well you affected me in a way that so i'm just like okay go on so i counted bitcoin out and then i started watching ethereum because there were more interesting things being done there. And again, the fees were still low at that time. Ethereum's like trading below a dollar, you know? Um, so I'm like, okay, let me watch this. And every everybody, I was looking around and I was seeing all the interesting people were talking about Ethereum, doing things on Ethereum, right? And that was up until, so through 2016, sort of getting into 2017, I had given up on Bitcoin. I was just like, I don't, there's no fundamentals here. The price is going up because of greater fool, because I knew I had the experience of, you can't build anything on this network. Like you can't build businesses on this. So like, no, it's no. And then it was, uh, you know, 2017 happened, the ICOs were going and I looked at that and I said, oh, well, this is going to go, this is going to go bad. <laughs> right? Like that you, was you, another one of those times where I sold uh, and, I, I still, I don't regret that one at all. Cause I felt like I actually got the timing, right. You know, you could say, well, if I never sold anything and, you know, sat all the way through, I would have recovered it all. But like, it was like, dude, I, when, when you see people behaving like complete fools, if I almost feel like there, there's, I almost feel like I have an ethical obligation to exit that market. <laughs> you know? Well, there's the, there's the Joe Kennedy shoeshine boy story, this classic story. That I've, I mean, I've repeated it over and over in the space throughout all of these. So for people who don't, who haven't heard this story, it's apocryphal. It's sometimes assigned to other people, Morgan and some other people. But basically, it's, it's supposedly it's Joe Kennedy. And it's uh, the run up to, I guess, the stock market crash of the 30s. And uh, Joe Kennedy has all of these, you know, positions that are doing well. And. He's, he goes and he said he basically knew it was, he should exit, that he sold all his positions when he was getting his shoe shine and the shoe shine boy was giving him stock tips. <laughs> it was Uber and, drivers uh, in our era. It, it, that's the shoe shine boy. Yep. Right. So this is, it's, it's one of these stories. And then you think, well, why does this story stick? Why do people in the world, why have people in the world of finance kept this legend or this myth around as a heuristic? Well, it's a lesson. It's a, it's a fable that has a moral to the story. And so I look around and, you know, I look at people who don't know anything about the, the tech 
who don't know anything about economics, who don't know anything about anything. And if they're going to talk to me about ICOs, I'm out from ICOs. <laughs> if they're going to talk to me about DeFi, I have no DeFi positions. Now they're talking to me about NFTs. We NFTs. already know that situation, right? <laughs> so it's like, and the wonderful thing about it is that maybe I will be like, hey, I actually teach people how to make NFTs like by hand on the third day of my course, like bite by bite. I've written protocols for NFTs like that are in millions of wallets of, uh, th to be able to do payments with them and all of this. I'm telling you it's a scam. And they're like, you don't know anything. What do you know? And I'm like, okay. But <laughs> you haven't seen this picture of an ape with a worm crawling out of its nose, you know? You, you don't know. Um, so, so when you saw that, you were, you were still kind of in that mode that like, okay, this, this tech that has some promise is basically just all being used for garbage and being screwed up. Yep. And you didn't yep. have a lot of reason to build on it. What, when, did you, when did you see, was it when uh, Bitcoin Cash forked off that you said, that was it. There's something here? It wasn't me. It was, it was my, uh, so the editor of Countermarkets, Jeff Paul, who at the time I was, uh, was also a partner in the show that I was doing, the Vin Armani show, our podcast. And he just, he had been extolling the virtues. We would go back and forth. He would extol the virtues of Bitcoin, basically like a little more on the hodl side and whatnot. And I would just tell him, bro, it's going nowhere. You can't build on it. You can't do any of these things. And so, but very, very good natured and both of us searching for truth always. And so he, it, was, it wasn't until maybe October of 2017, the split was in August of 2017, that he reached out to me one day and he was like, hey man, are you paying any attention to this Bitcoin cash thing? Like, are you paying attention to this? And I said, man, I mean, what is it? Not really. I hadn't really been involved in the block size debate or anything like that. I wasn't really involved in, in that community besides... I mean, watching it, and I saw a lot of it go down at like Anarchapulco that year, Tone Base and Roger Veer, like in person, like watching them go at each other. And so I was aware of what it was. I was talking about what was what was going on, but I, I was like, eh, whatever. And so he said, no, 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 maybe you should check it out. And so I said, okay. And I pulled out those old libraries that I had been, uh, you know, working on before back in 2014 and basically just made the took about an hour or two worth of work to make it so that it pointed at Bitcoin cash nodes instead of pointing at Bitcoin nodes. And boom, my project was back. Hmm. Like, I was like, oh, oh, it all works again. Yeah. Like it's all there again. Like, oh, okay, um, restart. And, and that was the moment where I started thinking about, well, well what are the things that I could do and now having these years where I had been in the space more, interacting with people, really interacting with the, with, with the currency and seeing where the problems were that I said, well, what's a problem? What's a problem? And the problem was, how do we onboard people? Like, and this is still like, for me, this has been the entire, this has been my entire focus of development. Yeah. Is like, how do, because I wanted to make purchases. But I knew that the biggest issue was always, and you don't have to go very far down this. I was one of the people who, as an evangelist, like, hey, will you accept Bitcoin? Like, I'll pay in Bitcoin if you accept Bitcoin. And like, and I have been that. We still, to this day, do, do that here, you know? But the biggest issue that always comes up is someone's like, yeah, I want to be involved in Bitcoin, or I want to pay. I want to pay in Bitcoin, or I want to pay in crypto. I want to do this. 
how do I get some? How do I get some? And it's like, well, and this was, it was a lot easier back at that time. You know, in 2017, I could still say, oh, download a wallet and go to coinatmradar.com and go to, you'll find an ATM in your radar, uh, in your, in your area and go. Yep. Yep. Right. But now it's like the ATMs take all kind of KYC, you know, you got to get, there were a lot of ways. I mean, there were even faucets if you wanted a little bit, there were, sure. there were exchange. There was a lot of ways to, to get it a lot quicker, a lot easier um, than today. Local bit, I mean, that, local that's gotten worse. Bitcoins, local Bitcoins was still there, but they, you know, they use that to, to crack down on people. And now like regulatorily, like they've just gone nuts on trying to break, on trying to crack that down. So make it, that's how they're, steadily trying to kill Bitcoin is make it more and more difficult for people to onboard to the to the process. Yeah. And I didn't see a lot of people paying attention to that. I also didn't see a lot of people, and this is a big issue, a lot of people realizing that the problem was mostly regulatory and not technical. Yes. So it is not at all hard for me to exchange money for Bitcoin with you. That's super easy. And it's how I did my first transactions when they were $15 hand to hand. Why? Well, I mean, that's what Charlie Shrimp, like send me, PayPal me 10 bucks and I'll send you Bitcoin, right? You can do it. You just go to prison. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So what I saw happening was what didn't make any sense to me as an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, I looked and what I saw people doing was saying, well, the regulations are here. So so our options are either one, get all the licensing, or two, don't do it. And I said, but that's not like that's not how you create a billion dollar company. Right. Like if Uber said that, Uber yes. wouldn't exist. Yes, exactly. If Airbnb said that, Airbnb wouldn't exist. Okay. So when you look at the history of Uber, which is super interesting, and, and in our newsletter, Countermarkets, that was actually five years ago, that was the first article I wrote, was the history of Uber, mm -hmm. right? It was like, because it's like, this sets it off to where, like, to start your mind going. So that's issue number one. My article is like the history of Uber. And, but this was also true. I, you know, I I've been a software developer since, since the, you know, and involved in tech since the late 90s, early, early 2000s. I watched the tech boom happen. You know, I, I know what it looks like for there to be a wild west. And it's like, eh, it's a champagne problem. If we scale to the place that the regulators care, we'll deal with the regulations then, which is really yep. what Uber, yep. you know, and we'll have the capital to deal with it. Yes. And maybe we'll lobby some people and get the regulations changed. <laughs> you know, like yep. these are the types of things that you that you think about as an entrepreneur. And what I didn't see anybody doing was actually even seeing what are these regulations? What do they actually say? And is there a way to build our systems so that they don't fall inside these, so that we can literally say, no, we are not subject to this because look how it's built. It's amazing how many times regulations are assumed and how much government can control without even having to 100%. technically back it up. I mean, you know, you've seen this in the, in the current world. Like, I don't even know what my city or state has in terms of regulations regarding max masks and all this stuff nobody really knows anymore and but everybody just assumes that there must be something there and so they'll you know they'll just say i mean and like payment processors are famous for this when it comes to crypto they just assume that anything related to crypto is illegal so they don't want to touch it and there's just there's so much across the board if a business is like oh that's a heavily regulated industry 
you know, and I get that, but it's also like, if you take that approach, then innovation doesn't happen, right? Because then it's always in the hands until some regulator comes out and explicitly clearly says exactly what the law is, which is impossible. If you've ever looked at the tax code, you know, this, uh, my brother is a CPA and he, he used to, they used to do a game. He used to work at a firm years ago and they used to do a game where they would take a tax return and they'd have like three different CPAs do it. Oh yeah. It's always they would all get different results, right? Yeah. Every single yeah. time. It's like, and, and they, the would same probably, guy twice. they would probably all be that like the government would accept all three. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. So like, what does it mean to be in compliance? Good luck. Right. You know? Right. So, so you saw that you saw that people were basically too scared to even try. And you decided. I, I, don't, to get- I don't know that it's even scared. I think it's just about orientation. Hmm. I, I mean, I've always been, and maybe one of the reasons why is, you know, I've spent so much of my life in, in my entrepreneurial career in gray markets and gray yeah. areas. And, and when you're in those gray markets, you've got to know the laws better than the people who are going to be enforcing them against you. You've got to be, you've got to know it to the letter, to the T. And so this was something I took on to myself as a practice of going through whatever regulations, laws, fine tooth comb. What does this mean? What can I do? What can't I do? How can I understand it? And then to, when I thought I had it and it was for a business, going out and actually paying for, the, for legal counsel, who was a subject matter expert, to be able to do it. And um, this is something that this and this this informed point test. So we, I, I said, well, I want to create a. What can I create? Basically, it was like this: What could I create? Where this was the scenario that I envisioned, or the problem that I had. I'm encountering these people. I'm talking to them at, about Bitcoin. They say, "How can I get some Bitcoin?" I was like, "How could I give them Bitcoin?" without them having to do anything that was like, where there was friction. Because even a situation of, oh, pull out your phone, go to the app store, download this app. Um, oh, you're gonna need to save that 12 word phrase. Oh, you're gonna <laughs> need to do all of this. I'm like, my, I'm envisioning it. Of, I'm sitting next to someone at a, a bar that I've never met. And I'm just talking to them about this. They're like, how could I do it? And it's like, oh, get this. And they're like, not really right now. I'm here. I'm at a bar. I'm not trying to go through all this stuff. You know what I mean? Yep. And so we came up with Cointext. And the idea was like, what's your phone number? Boom. See that text? You've got, you've got funds. To be able to do it in a, in a structure with a wallet that would also be exempt from money transmitter laws. So where we wouldn't be considered a custodian. So it's like, how can we use this technology to build that system? And we did. And we ended up with the, the very first person we contracted out to. And Jeff Paul became one of my partners in that. And so we, we built it out, then contacted a, a great attorney who's probably the foremost um, subject matter expert in, in the field. His name's Dave Burson. And he runs uh, blockchain, what is it? Blockchainlawguide.com. So if people want to check, if you want to see all the blockchain laws, like it's all there. Um, he's been putting that together for, for many years, but this was sort of his first foray into, you know, a business doing this. And he helped us to construct this business in the proper, to have all the proper things, the terms, the every, everything legally to get it structured. And then we started rolling out and we started with, I think, eight countries 
So we would have numbers, these access numbers in each one of the individual countries. And it was like US, UK, Australia, trying to, and maybe it was, maybe it was less, but Canada, four or five countries. And, and so we set ourselves a goal of, well, let's do it in, let's roll out in every single country. And so we, we released, we, we had a private beta, we went public, like did a public beta and released to the public. And that night I get a call from Roger Veer um, and Craig Wright. And we're then talking with, with Jimmy over at Enchain and all these people wanting to invest. And we actually ended up going with a seed investment from somebody who was kind of outside the Bitcoin scene, but very much inside the crypto scene, um, David Johnston, who's actually the person who, who coined the term DAP, D-APP. He's, yeah. he's actually the, the person who coined that term. Um, and he's been involved with a lot of projects. Factum is, is probably one of the biggest ones. Polygon is another one. Right now he's doing a lot of Web3 um, stuff. And really, really cool guy saw our vision and was just all about like, let's get it into as many countries in as many languages as possible. And we devoted the next year. Uh, we ended up with over 40 countries and several dozen languages. Really cool. And um, we're set up for to release on WhatsApp. So now, that was just to, to give a quick picture to people uh, watching, listening. So I was a I was a pretty early as soon as I heard about it I started using mm -hmm. it, um, and basically the experience was like this: you you go to um, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember what you went to first, but you you <clears throat> excuse me you would text someone and as long yeah. you would put in like some sort of on an SMS text I can't remember if it was like a number or a code or something and you'd be like send this person a dollar, yep, and then the person would get a text that said. You have received a dollar. It's in your it's in your CoinTax account, and it was it was in basically it was an invisible wallet that was yep. attached yep. to their phone number. And now they could text money to anybody, and they could text show me my balance, and it would show them their balance. Um, they and it was all on chain. That's the important yep. part. Yep. So, so it, it was, was all on chain. It wasn't you got. It wasn't you holding no, it for them. We didn't hold funds. We never but held it funds. Automatically created a wallet yes. for them. Yes. Assigned yes. them the keys through some complicated Diffie Hillman or whatever. I <laughs> see. I know. I know enough to get in trouble. Got it. Yeah. Um, I mean, but the experience was so cool because so like I got it and you know I had been into this stuff for quite a while and like I didn't I never really tried to tell people my family and friends about it because you know how that goes like oh come on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I got this I just started surprising people and sending them That's a couple it. bucks just I sent like ten people you know a couple bucks hey check your phone. And they're like, cool. And I'm like, yeah, you can send money to someone else. You can check your balance. You can do whatever. And so they basically had a invisible wallet that was, you know, on chain and they could control it. The UI was their cell phone, was their text messaging. And it was like, just super, super cool. Really, really cool. So, um, I mean, that's an impressive technological feat, by the way. To, to, to work that. I mean, at least from my standpoint as a non-tech guy. Well, it had, it, whether it's, I think, whether it's impressive or not, to me, it had one of those. So I, I, I will often judge ideas by, by what I've uh, come to call the duh factor. So if I'm talking with somebody about an idea that I have and their response is, well, duh, like, doesn't that already exist? Is nobody <laughs> yeah. doing it? Yeah. Like that is the greatest heuristic 
for a potentially really good and profitable business. Yep. Like if you're not this. hearing that, yeah. If you're not hearing that, you should probably wait to spend your time on something that you are hearing that when you talk to somebody about it. And this was one where people were like, wait, doesn't that already exist? And, and also uh, we were heavily guided by the success of a system called M-Pesa, M-P-E-S-A, which is, does billions of dollars in transactions via SMS in Africa. So particularly in um, Eastern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and some, some others, it's expanded, but incredibly successful. And so <laughs> the coolest part about this was, and you know, in places like, you know, Africa wasn't so bad. Believe me, they actually have a like smartphone in Africa, like the penetration of smartphones is really high. They skipped Very right high. over the landline phase. Skipped, skipped, skipped over it. They've got cheap Android phones. But Eastern Europe and places in Asia is, uh, so like when we released in Poland, we immediately got all of these pictures of like Polish grandmas on these old Nokias sending, sending money with text, right? So here, oh, you can use on a dumb, a old ancient dumb phone, you could have a Bitcoin cash wallet where you could receive and send. Um, same thing in, Pol uh, in uh, Ukraine. So when we released in Ukraine, which again, we had to do some interesting things in Ukraine, like we had to block all the numbers from Donbass, from like uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, because they were on the, um, the OFAC, which is like the um, embar embargo or whatever you want to call it, type, type of list. So, but again, these are all the types of things to make it so that you don't wind up like some of these guys who just like, like a Charlie Shram. Right to where you're just like, ah, I'm just going to do it. And like, clink, there go the bars. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I could have actually spent some time on it. Now, you don't have to be, I think that there's a royal path, right? There's a middle line of that. Yep. And you can go too far, which is like Roger Veer is like way too far on one side. And I've said this to him many, many times, right? I've, I've worked with him, I'm friends with him to where I'm like, Bro, like you can't just be like, yeah, we're just going to go out on the dark web and we're going to put it out there and we're going to do all of this. And like, who cares? And let the state come get us and screw the state and all of this stuff. You can't do that. Well, like, it's, it's tough because, the you know, the principal part of you wants to do that. But the there's there's sort of two problems with it. You know, one is obviously the risk to yourself that you end up in prison. But the other one is you immediately shrink the market and shrink the potential. Right. Well, yeah, because are you valuable? Is your is is your input into the ecosystem valuable? This is the question, right? Like, are you worth more having made some weird ideological stand? And like, you don't want to sacrifice your principles. Like, yes, we understand the state. Yeah, I, I don't support that. I'm not acquiescing to the state, but at the same time, the state is a predator. But even and even if you don't end up yourself imprisoned or something if it's something that is on the dark web or illegal your market is this big it's people who are comfortable using the dark web right i don't even i wouldn't even know how to find the dark web right and i'm about as radical politically as they come but i'm pretty normie as a tech as a non-tech guy when it comes to the way that i interact with the world so like yeah it is it is interesting because there is a there is a dance almost of okay don't start asking what the regulations are and how to be compliant until you get market validation. Go get market yeah. validation. 
No one's going to give a crap about your product when you have a hundred users and you're making a dollar in revenue or whatever yes. it is, a thousand. I mean, you can fly under the radar. Once you have validation and you say it's worth the cost of lawyering up and navigating these things, right? Yes. And you go a little further. And then when you look and you say, hey, we're going to hit this regulation that's going to kill us, but we won't hit it you know, until uh, the, the regulators won't notice until a certain amount of time. And if by that time we can get big enough to make them bend to us instead of the other way around, right? There's games that you play. You got to navigate or, all those. Or, or you say, let's start looking at how how we might be able to alter the product or is there technology yes. that would enable us to take advantage of a loophole here? Is yep. First, is there a loophole, right? That, 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 that would be plausible deniability or whatever you want to call it, something. Because if it's innovative, yes. you know, all laws are reactive. This is important for entrepreneurs to understand. Like if you see something on the books, it's because it's reacting to something that someone has already done. There, there are very few proactive laws. And so if you're doing something novel and innovative, you can almost assume if it's truly novel that there isn't a law specifically for it. And you just have to be like on the side of it enough so that they can't apply something else to you. But so I got to give you a tiny, a tiny anecdote on this please, um, please. because it's so relevant. And then I want to hear the, what happened with Cointext please, and please. we moved to payment channels. So, so when I first went to start my first company Praxis, which is a, which is an apprenticeship program, it's an alternative to college. And basically the idea, my first idea was like, look, I think we can get people super, super hireable and employable uh, in like a year. And I want it to be for zero cost because I think I can convince companies that if I give them a little training, I'll bring you an apprentice. They will work for free. Um, you pay me to get an apprentice that I have vetted and trained and they'll work for you for free for six months with the expectation of getting offered a job at the end if they do a good job. Companies loved it. Young people loved it. Hey, you get it. if you get accepted into this program, it's free. And at the end of the year, you're going to have all these skills and six months of work experience and probably a job, right? And you're paying zero. So I was all excited. I had it all mapped out. I was getting this thing all going. And then I uncovered this little law, this little section of the labor department that's like, you know, uh, an, uh, about unpaid workers, that if someone works for you unpaid, it is illegal to do this if they create any value for the company, comma, in fact, they, they should be detrimental to the business's success. Like it, literally the language is something like that. I can't remember. It's so absurd. It's like, unless they are making your company worse, this is illegal. Now me being this radical kind of libertarian type guy, I'm like so angry. And I call my brother and he shares my philosophy, but he's much more just relaxed and like, you know, whatever, more, more of a, he thinks practically first and philosophically second, maybe. And so- and he's a brilliant entrepreneur. And I'm like, they ruined it. I can't believe it. everything. The state ruins everything. Blah, blah, blah. And he just started, he started laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing at me? My, my whole thing that I've been pouring my life into for these last six months and my own money on my own credit card, I'm trying to bootstrap this thing up. I just realized it's illegal. It's ruined. And he's like, that's, there's always a way around it. I don't know what it is, but if you, if you look for it, you'll find it. That wall that you just hit, that's why you're going to succeed because everybody else quit when they hit that. Don't worry about it. And he thought it was funny. He thought it was like a game. And that totally flipped my mindset. And I thought, huh, I'm kind of just being a victim-y baby here. Okay, well, what can I do? And it turns out 
that the solution actually wasn't that difficult. It was kind of right in front of my face. Now, it made the business model slightly more roundabout and the marketing pitch slightly different, but the end user experience was the same. So all we ended up doing was saying, students, you pay tuition for this program. And then once you're in, we place you at a company that pays you the same or greater than what you paid in tuition. Same net result. The end, the program's a year long. You pay a net cost of zero. It's just that you pay tuition up front, or you can even do an extended payment plan. And hey, that's cool. <laughs> and, and, the, and the whole thing is basically the same, but it's all legal, right? And so like, just flipping my mindset, because my brother basically just laughed at me and gave me a slap in the face, like, so what? You know, there's always a way to work around regulations, right? And I think that mindset is really, really important. So to know how much can you bend, break, redefine, work around, work with, you know, um, and not just give up when you face it. To me, that's the joy of entrepreneurship. It's unlocking that. For me, that's, that's why I love being an entrepreneur. And that's why I love, especially my, my whole development, my software development career has always been in startups. And it's because that's when you get to have those experiences. And one, I think I'm good at it, right? But two, it's what I enjoy. And often they say we, we enjoy what, we, what we're good at and we're good at what we enjoy, right? So it, 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 it works that way. But very much I do view sort of the world of startups and whatnot as problem solving. And I think there's a lot of people that would back that up. I, you, you look at like Michael Seibel comes to mind, the CEO of Y Combinator, the founder of, of Twitch, right? That sold for like, whatever, a billion dollars to Amazon, $970 million, right? He's constantly talking about, you know, how to identify problems and solve problems. And that's, that's it, right? Um, which it, it kind of brings up, you know, the one thing I've left out from Cointext right now is that people might be thinking like, well, how does Cointext make money? That's what people yeah. have been asking. Yeah, yeah. And this, this goes to the micro and tiny payments. Um, and it's something that as far as I know, no other wallet has done, and I don't know why. Because one of the big things that wallet makers, and even open source wallets could do this, that wallet makers have a tough time with is how do we monetize our wallet? How do we make money off our wallet? Most of the wallets that you, that you will see, whether it's from Bitcoin.com to Coinomi to Jax, whoever, basically how they uh, monetize their wallet is, you can buy gift cards inside the wallet and get an affiliate fee. You can sometimes trade, like do trades of like on Changely or Sideshift or something like that. And you can do a trade in multi-currency wallets and they take a little fee on that. Well, we, we didn't do that. But what I did realize was, well, we create the transaction. So the wallet software creates the transaction. That's true on any of these. And there's also, you know, a fee. And the market will hold some fee. But the question is like, well, how much of a fee will the market hold? You know, like how much of a fee are people willing to? And it's like, if the fee was a cent, one penny, would the market hold that? I think yes. Clearly, look at what the fees on, on uh, BTC will hold, yeah. right? Yeah. And really, does anybody, would anyone care if it was two cents, three cents, four cents, right? You don't want to get it too high. But it's like, if it was, if it was this amount, would anybody care? And... We started out saying, well, if we maybe did this as like a, well, let me, let me just say that one of the things for the micro and tiny payments and the keys with this of, of paying out, one of the 
things about Bitcoin. People don't really understand this. We go into this a lot in my Bitcoin Mystery School course. Like this is one of the most important realizations for people to have about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin's transaction structure is multi-input, multi-output. We call this a UTXO model. It's not like Ethereum. It's not like your bank account where it's like money goes in and it goes into this one pool. It's more like a bag of coins kind of. And you can take this bag of coins and you can chop it up and you can split it out. And it's actually, there's some, Bitcoin is a a cool name. It it actually is like the pieces of eight, the Spanish uh, silver dollar. It uses that same metaphor. Very, very, very cool. Like I said, we go into this a lot in in, uh, my Bitcoin mystery school course. But essentially what we did is we said, oh, okay. So, So what we'll do is part of the terms of use of this thing and what everybody's agreeing to when they send funds is um, we're going to send, they're they're going to send because it's their software. It's a non-custodial, it's in their possession. When they hit send, what they're agreeing to is, oh, we say, here's the amount, here's the fee you're going to send. The fee includes a separate output that's a microtransaction for us, a penny, two cents, whatever it is of equivalency. They're going to hit send. It's going to go. And so every time there's a send from out of our wallet, and now mind you, every wallet could be doing this. Yep. And you can every- adjust it based on use case, right? So for some some data application that's doing tons sure. of tiny, tiny, tiny things, and they, they're not going to pay a penny, you can give them zero or you can give them really, really small. But the the, the use case of, of Cointex, if I'm sending you $2, I don't care that you guys take a penny. You know, like I don't even think about it, right? I assume that you're going to take a penny. I assume you're going to take 30 cents plus 3% because I've been conditioned by PayPal and Stripe. And now the interesting part about this, how we ended up doing it again to make sure that we were regulatorily exempt. And this is why having a good attorney who really knows their stuff in, in the subject matter uh, is, is useful. So Dave Burson, our attorney said, listen, because at first we were like, well, maybe we'll do it as a percentage, like a commission percentage. Ah. Um, and he said, ah, listen, the commission percentage thing, or even if you're going to tie it to like a U.S. dollar value, he said, it starts to get where you're not, maybe not in the exemption if you do that and showed us some things. He for, said, but for a listen. money transmitter. Yes. Yeah. He said, but listen, here's, here's a way. And it's kind of like your story. We said, here's a way you could definitely do it because it's already been cleared by FinCEN, the treasury in relationship to mining. He said, they've already cleared the idea that miners can take fees based upon the size of the transaction. Because what you're doing then is it's really, it's about block size. It's about work. It's about processor effort. It's about how much you're sending over a network, all of this. Someone's paying you to, to make a, to make a, a, interaction with the blockchain on their behalf. Right. Or you, you, like you've metered because you're metering data. Yeah. He said, listen, the, the data metering, if you can show this is data metering and you're charging per byte that you send, he's like, that's been clear. That's so clear. Because if it wasn't cleared, then every time I use my banking app, the mobile phone company would be considered a, uh, you know, yeah. a money transmitter. Yeah. Right. So, so he's like, this is a clean, clean, clean. So it's like, okay, well, the fee for the miner is one Satoshi per byte. So we're going to charge 10 in addition in our output. You pay the miner one Satoshi per byte, you pay us 10 Satoshis per byte. And now it's not based, it's based upon the number of inputs and outputs you have. It's based on the size of the transaction. It's not based upon how much, how much funds you're sending. We don't care about that. And that turned out to be clean, regulatorily, perfectly clean. So 
the crazy part now now here's an interesting situation that i had there's a developer chris pacey a great developer yeah. uh bitcoin cash writes a lot good with the philosophy of bitcoin as well um he and another great developer who's who's been influential very influential at coinbase josh ellithor both wonderful guys great guys old school been around fought in the wars done it all right um had their own node bchd that they maintain they started a wallet called Neutrino. Chris was also uh, instrumental. I think he was the lead backend developer of OpenBazaar and, and their wallet uh, and Haven. And so in their wallets, he did this in both Haven and he did this in their Neutrino wallet that they released. And I sort of was like, this, this just shows you how sort of off the orientation is even by people who are deeply immersed in this. They had their default fee for Bitcoin Cash set to 100 Satoshis per byte that was going to the miners. Now, you only need one Satoshi per byte to get it confirmed on in the next block. So that's all you needed. But the default, and you could change it, but the default that everybody encountered was you're going to send 100 Satoshis per byte to the miners. And I said to him, Chris... If you're going to say, why didn't you just set it? If the market will hold 100 Satoshis per byte, why didn't you set it 99 Satoshis to you? Right. Or right. to open the car? Why are you giving? He's like, oh, to incentivize the miners. I was like, it doesn't, it's so little. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't move the needle. They're going to take it, whether it's one or whether it's, they don't care. Yeah. That market is not <clears throat> mature enough yet. And instead no. of, and instead of living, as if we are in a world where that matters, use this time to, to your advantage. And as that, that's a, that's a big advantage to you use it. Miners currently don't care because they're getting the block reward. So use that to your advantage. And the yeah. consumer will pay it. And the consumer will pay. Yeah. Happily. Yeah. Yep. Happily. It, it, so, and that, I, and that idea that that's where like, it's funny because you can get, you know, the, the whole idea of like, hey, tiny payments matter. Um, I get, I start that hashtag, tiny payments matter. Um, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it, it's in a way a reaction against the kind of weird, um, you know, the kind of weird one size fits all ideology that took over Bitcoin of like, all that matters is, you know, people running these nodes and blah, 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 blah. And who cares about the fees? But what's weird is a lot of people who favor that, they have this weird ideological commitment as well. That's like, okay, well, low fees are really important when we think about all the applications that Bitcoin can have. Therefore, every single thing we build, we must always have the lowest fees possible. And it's like, that's, that's not how you win in business. You, you make the fees, whatever level the consumer in your market for your product can tolerate. Well, why? Yeah. This, like this some, is, some, this, some applications this, putting weather data on chain. Yes. The fees probably need to be so right. freaking low or else they won't do it. But having, well, why, having why do they, paid, why do they matter? Right? Like that's what I think is missing. Like we talk about low fees but we never talk about why. And I think that the reason why is because, or the reason why is because the people saying that the low fees are needed don't know why. It's an ideological position that, they, yes. that, that they've yes. gotten. The reason why, and I've tried, for years I have tried to explain this to people, right? So Cointex is the proof of that. 
So people would ask me like, why don't you support BTC on Cointext? I said, well, the reason we don't support it is because the, that, the, the fees are high enough that we can't take profits. Because yep. we're ta- we can only take profits when the fees are low enough that the market, the total market for fees will still hold. We're a broker, basically, right? So if the market will only hold something and it's basically the same cost that I can get it for, that's not what I'm selling. What do I want to sell? I want to I want to find the lowest price because my profit is in between. And it's just, it's so obvious, right? So I explain it to people, and this is why I've said like, Stop looking at Bitcoin as digital gold. Start looking at it as oil. Okay. Why do why does a trucking company, why does an air uh, um, an airline company, why is it so beneficial to them if the oil prices are low? Because that's their cost. Yes. Yep. So if if they're charging the same amount for their trucking services because they can't be taking the price up, if they're charging the same amount and the price goes up ten percent. They lose 10% of profits. If the price goes down 5% or they find a new supplier that takes the price down 5% without doing anything else, except moving over to that supplier for the exact same commodity, they've increased their price, their their profits by 5%. I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of launch this series was to rattle some brains and wake up some imaginations about what it, what kind of things, what kind of unique things are, are possible with, with micro and nano payments instead of, because right now there are people who will defend low fee Bitcoin or other, or other blockchains and those who will say that the high fees don't matter. And most of the time, they're both talking about things where it's really irrelevant. So like you'll see people say, well, let's convince all these people buying these NFTs on Ethereum to buy them somewhere else. They'll say, look, you just spent $20,000 on some piece of art because you want the status and the hype and you had to spend $300 on gas fees. What if you could spend three cents on gas fees? And I'm like, in that case, the gas fee is a feature, not a bug. Their whole point is conspicuous consumption. For that use case, they want to show you how much money they were willing to burn on something useless because it's a flex. So going to them and trying to sell them low fees Feels like you're you're trying to get them to shop at Aldi when they want to go to Whole Foods. You, you know? got it, you got it, you got it. That well, and that's that's exactly it. Is that people don't see well? What's the what's the value of the NFT in the first place, right? And and the the reason for all of this is because, as you say, Isaac, the the orientation is not towards trying to solve problems that can only be solved with Bitcoin, or maybe they can't only be solved with Bitcoin, but solving problems that fiat can't solve. Okay. Or and that, at least a 10x improvement over the fiat version. Yeah. Well, Cointext is an example of that, right? You cannot send fiat currency tech by text with no financial institution involved. Yep. You simply can't do it. Right. And so this was this was the reason why people came in with investment. Our idea to continue the story on that, our idea was um, let's expand out to these countries. And our investors were very much like, can we get this on WhatsApp? Because if we could get this on WhatsApp, it's the exact same user experience, but we just got a billion instant users. And so I was like, wow. So I pushed, you know, we had all of these gateway, we had like five different gateways that we were different countries, different SMS numbers. One of them reached out to us and was like, hey, 
Would you like to be in this WhatsApp pilot program? They're releasing WhatsApp for business. You guys could be one of the first ones. We don't have any other cryptocurrency stuff. And we're like, cool, yeah, let's do it. So we built it out. We were getting set to launch, uh, I think April 15th of 2019. We were getting ready to launch and uh, everything was working. We'd actually done all of these. We couldn't reach India. That was one country that we couldn't get, but with WhatsApp, we, we did. So boom, here's all these people in India. Places like um, South Sudan, that was a crazy one. We're like, so here we've got this pilot and, okay, here's all these guys in South Sudan sending coin text over WhatsApp. I was like, oh, wow. And we had all this payment protocol stuff that we had worked out with AnyPay and all of this. We were starting to send, do remittances this way. There's this really cool video that we did, remittance between Germany and Ghana using just coin text. Like really, really cool. And... I, I was driving across country, uh, driving from, we, we had another baby. I was driving from New Hampshire back to California because we were moving back to be around family. And here goes my phone and it's my, my rep from over at our, at our payment, at our uh, SMS gateway. And he's like, I am so sorry about this, right? Like we had, we had paid into this, all the things, signed all the documents, ready to go. Like everything, right? Just had to like the, the the flip, the switch just had to be flipped. And he goes, "I am so sorry about this. Uh, this is affecting our company so greatly. But basically, we just got notified by Facebook, like with no, no pre-warning or anything, that all financial apps are being any any financial company to do apps within this WhatsApp business is not allowed. They're removing all financial apps from." all of their platforms and all of this, right? And I'm like, oh, they're about to release, they're about to release a stable coin. That's, I knew it immediately. And so it was like, you know, called, called our investors. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a very, like, it was a real, uh, like, like a real letdown in that regard at the time. And so it was just like, well, where do we go? You know, because the idea here was, the entire plan was let's get into as many people's hands. We had maxed out on all of our SMS numbers. So we'd maxed out there. And it was just like that, the, the whole vision of why, you know, these investors came on. And I think they were right about this particular product is it's got to be universally available. Yeah. And what's that pretty much made it that right. So, so it was just one of those where we were like, eh, well, we'll try to pivot. We tried a few different things, you know, we still had burn, we still had capital. So we're pivoting, we're trying a few different things. It was good that I, I, it gave me a chance to develop like some new protocols and some new technologies and everything. Um, looking back on it, I think, and I think we've all looked back on it, uh, my partners and I, and seen, you know, we, by being on WhatsApp, you know, what we said was, thank, thank God it happened then. Thank God it wasn't two months later after we had already launched and there were people with wallets yeah. made that yeah. all of a sudden their wallets went dark and they couldn't access it or we had to deal with all of this stuff, right? Like that would have been bad. And it was realizing, I was like, okay, plat that really solidified for me. Platform risk is something that we've got to recognize and deal with uh, as, as an industry. It was a real like, okay, even the SMS portion was platform risk. And I looked at it as like, okay, this is good. This is good to, 
to have been saved. Really, like I look at it as like providentially being saved from what could have been a reputation ruining situation for me. Like me trying to do my best, but just not having necessarily the, the view of what it, what that platform risk would mean. Oh, Vin, Vin, he's that guy who uh, like a hundred billion, you know, poor people uh, got their money trapped on his his app. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, dude. Like that. So I, I really look at it as, as this lesson that was painful, but so far gentle, gentle in terms of how painful it could have been. And so, so so I'm guessing this is what, yeah, go ahead. I mean, that's, you know, we, we, we burned along and Cointex was up and then, uh, you know, it was over the next year that we like slowly started winding it down with lots of notifications and making sure people could get, get their funds out. And uh, as far as I know, we were pretty much, we were relatively successful in, in, you know, making sure that people didn't get tons of money. I'm sure that there are some people out there that have a dollar or two, you know, that they were playing around with that are there, but I probably do somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't, I, let's just say, um, you know, we had a few, we kept, we kept it up. We basically took it down, but sort of privately kept up some, some access numbers for about six to seven months. And we did have people reaching out to us like, Oh, I've got, you know, $5,000 or this amount or whatever. And we were like, okay, there's an access number here. Go ahead and hit it. And so as far as we know, most everybody who had a significant amount of funds was able to get it off. And then we just recently, uh, probably about five months ago, we sold off the assets to another company. So we had a little bit of an exit there. And I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. They may try to revitalize it. They've got the code. Um, so, so we'll see. But overall, like sort of it came full circle. Great experience. We built a lot. I learned a lot. So, um, so okay. So this is a good, a good segue into, let's see, we have like three three things that I want to cover before we wrap up here. But one of them, and this is the perfect segue you, I have heard you say many times and I didn't quite get it until I listened to an interview you did on uh, actually like more of a religious philosophical podcast, Jonathan Peugeot's the symbolic world you interviewed with him. You say um, protocols, not platforms and Mm -hmm hearing your experience with Cointext being dependent on both the SMS platform and the WhatsApp platform, realizing some of the vulnerabilities there and realizing kind of that this whole, all of the possibilities that Bitcoin or blockchain more generally crypto, if you want to call it that open up, if they are 100% dependent on platforms, it kind of neuters the whole unique value prop. Give me, give me a little more on that. What do you, what do you mean by that? And specifically when it comes to micropayment related ideas, businesses, apps, what does it mean to focus on protocols instead of platforms? So it's a broader, it's a broader idea here. And so what we might want to think about it in terms of principles is the, you know, a protocol protocols versus platforms would be, I need to eat. Okay. I need to eat. So let's say I want a bananas. Okay. So I've got some bananas here. So this is maybe a prime example. Okay. Because uh, it just re- it just recently happened, where there's bananas growing. I can literally look right now and I see bananas, 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 and two different varieties. I can point like this, and within like 50 feet on either side of me are bananas, and they're everywhere. They're like 
pests on, on, I'm in Saipan, they're everywhere, okay? But when you would go to the stores here, um, the bananas that you would see in all the stores were imported. They're imported from Philippines, they're ca Cavendish. We don't have the Cavendish variety here. So we have some other different varieties. Um, so if Cavendish is what everybody in the States, it's the banana that you know, but if you saw the bananas here, you'd be like, what are those? You know, people, people in the Caribbean would know like sort of more plantain style. There's lots of different types of bananas, okay? The kinds we have, the kind we have here, I really like them, they're, they're, they're very good. But they would all be Cavendish and they would all be from Philippines and they were all imported by one Russian family, the Jukron family, Juke Bananas. So they started this banana importation business, they brought them in and they would put them in the stores. So you basically could not find any local bananas in the stores. And there's such a pest here that if you go over to the house of somebody, like there's a, a buddy of mine, Chinese buddy of mine, every time I go over to his house uh, for anything, just to drop by, he, he, I have to leave with like a, so much bananas that I can't, we can't possibly eat. He's like, they're from my tree. They're just going, I got to take them, please go. You know, and that's everybody. Now, I've got them here at my house. Um, but everybody would eat those. Now, this guy... Uh, his his wife, they're friends with my wife, they're Russian. His wife goes and, and uh, moves the kids to Miami. They've got a special needs child and they want him to go to the school and whatever. So he decided that he was going to up and go to Miami and kind of like shut the business down. All of a sudden, there's no bananas in the stores. No bananas for like two months. There's no bananas in a store in the stores on an island that is covered in bananas. Okay. And it, so if you wanted bananas, protocol versus so a store is a platform, okay? Uh, an import business is a platform. But the protocol is a machete, right? I take my machete, I walk 50 feet, I go like this and I've got bananas, <laughs> okay? So that the, the protocol is how do I get the bananas? The platform is using the protocol, but yes. you can also use the protocol yourself directly. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Every every platform uses a protocol. And what the platform does is the platform makes it, they they abstract it out and they're an intermediary between the protocol and you. Yep. And you pay them for their use of the protocol. So when you're when there's an exchange, there's there's communications protocols, there's also the individual cryptocurrency protocols. You could be running those nodes. Right, you could be find, going and finding counterparties yourself. That would be a protocol, right? And you could engage and do the trade, and you could do it yourself, and that would be utilizing a protocol. But the platform is getting paid for, um, you know, for them doing the work. And the risk to you is the banana risk. Should something happen to the platform or should the platform decide that they don't want you involved anymore? If you don't know how to do the protocol, well, no bananas for you. And so you need to think about that when it comes to your finances and we're now seeing it. So the opportunity, look, the platforms aren't necessarily bad. Yeah, but I mean, I, I can say as a, like, I would rather not have to climb up a tree with a machete. I don't want to deal with the protocol. If, if there's somebody, if there's somebody, a middleman that gets a bad name, middleman wants to do it for me, please get, serve me up the, I don't know how to scan what's on chain and make sense of it. Send me a UI that makes it look pretty. That's the market. Me. I'm That's happy the market. to, but I love this recognition that the vulnerabilities there are real and can you have competition 
Can the platform have multiple people that can serve that up to you? And if one goes down, you can go to the other or worst case, you can go do it yourself or you can get some buddies to do it. Or you can have a whole bunch of a world where there's platforms come and go super, super quick. And mm -hmm. protocols are, are the, the, the main thing where the, you know, the stability matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The more, the more people who have access to the protocols, actually the better it is for the end consumers on the platform side. Yes. Why? Yes. Because everybody who can do the protocol is potentially a platform. So I am potentially a banana seller yep. because I've got a machete and I've got bananas, right? And if everybody's, if there's more banana sellers, well, what does that mean? Lower prices of bananas, Yep. more variety. And it, means, and it means that the, even if you don't have to ever whip out that machete, the fact that you could, the potential competition, right. means that whoever's doing it today, they got to stay sharp. They got to keep on their game because it's not very hard. Their moat is not very deep, their competitive moat, right? It, this is, um, I'm actually talking in the next episode, uh, hopefully, with um, one of the founders of of Twitch, and you know their their whole idea is you know a uh, a version of I mean they have a, a bigger idea, but a version of Twitter that's that's on chain. And the and the interesting thing is like they are the UI for you interacting with the blockchain. Now they do things like they make it look and feel just like Twitter, and they take a penny for every action for for the yep. privilege of making it look pretty for you and making it familiar, but there's already one or two competing UIs that people have spun up that can pull all the same information. And you can, I can even go on to BitSurf or RetroTwetch and I can see all the people that I have followed on Twitch because that's an on-chain action and all the things that they post because those are on-chain actions served up to me in a competing UI. And the fact like, that's a very small example and there may be, you know, things to work out, but the, like just one of those teasers of what's possible in a world where, the protocol is the thing that matters most and the platform is serving it up to you and they got to compete to serve it up to you better, you know? And even, I, I think even just a, a level of knowledge about the protocol that's underlying the platform changes everything in terms of your own experience with it. So it's introducing to you actual choice because that's, that's the one, that's what's really missing is, well, I, it's like so often the reason why you use a platform is because you just don't know how to use the protocol. Yeah. And many times it's not, so often it's not actually harder to use the protocol than it is to use the platform. There are many platforms that make it more difficult for you than the use of the protocol itself. Hey, look, man, I once upon a time, I've been, I've been doing blogs for so long that if you wanted bold or italics or whatever in a blog, you had to use HTML, super simple. So I learned some basic HTML. I will tell you that was no more difficult than trying to figure out freaking WordPress editors or whatever. There's yeah, some, there's the, some mark, the WordPress markup and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Markup, you got, you know, it, it's not necessarily harder. That's about as, as technical as I get HTML. But, um, but yeah, there is something... Mm -hmm. There is something there. I think it, it can be overly romanticized by tech people that everyone should, you know, everyone should know how to build their own engine instead of just drive the car. Mm -hmm. You can't build a massive product that way, but there is also a redundancies and robustness and the ability to, mm -hmm. and I, and I think I've never appreciated that as much as in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, I don't want to have to do this all the time, but I want to know that I can or that I have backup options. I don't want to have to get, acquire my food somewhere other than the mega grocery store. But if I have to, I want to know that it's possible and there are multiple layers of competing options that, you know. Um, so, so tell me about payment channels. This is what you came to me with. And I'm really curious about this. So I don't know a lot about... <clears throat> all the various protocols that can theoretically or actually do um, very small payments. I know a good bit about Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. Um, I know a little bit about the Lightning Network. Um, but from my experience and knowledge of the Lightning Network as the only payment channel that I, have, that I think I have ever interacted with in a way, um, it's like, it feels like a Rube Goldberg machine that's like, well, I could just pull the toast out of the toaster directly. Why the hell do I got to have this giant contraption that involves like a cat and a chessboard and dominoes and all this stuff? Yes. You know, yes. so like I have a little bit of a, this seems like a solution in search of a problem feel about payment channels. So give me, give me some reasons why if I'm interested in building micropayments based businesses, where might payment channels make sense? Yes. Uh, do me a favor. I just realized that I forgot my, um, I forgot my uh, charger for my for my laptop. I need to run in and get it. Otherwise, I'm, I'm about to, to lose yeah. you. You pause the recording real quick. I'll run in and get it and we'll jump. Yep, you bet. Okay, the charger has been acquired. Here we go. Payment channels. Payment channels. Okay, so it, it's good. I grabbed the charger and it gave me an opportunity to go and grab uh, one of the few books that I packed in my luggage when I came to, uh, when I came to Saipan is uh, this book right here, which I highly recommend to people. It's called uh, One from Many, Visa and the Rise of the Chaotic Organization. It's, it's, um, it's an autobiography of D. Hawk, who created Visa. And I think it's a, something that every Bitcoiner should know about and read about. This guy, had he been and I around- I just realized that I literally have never heard a single thing in my entire life about the creation of the, the credit card network, which is like an incredible digital payment network. There's a reason. It's because it's because this guy, D. Hawk, is he's more philosopher and he's a real like rebel. And he's not he's the, he he would be a Bitcoin. He's not somebody who's like obsessed with like finance and making money. He's this this book. What he talks about is um, so this chaotic. He calls it a chaotic. It's Chaos, it's an organization that combines chaos and order, which is basically a Bitcoin network, right? It's co-opetition. It's all the stuff that like Craig Wright would try to talk about, about miners and all of that, because uh, Visa, people don't know, Visa is owned by its member banks who are all competitors with each other. So they are all maintaining the Visa network so that they can compete with each other. Hmm. And doesn't that sound like Bitcoin? Yes. And so it's a incredibly interesting. He was totally an outsider. He had this little team of people that he was pulling from these banks and building. It's a fantastic story. And he's writing it himself. And there's a ton of philosophy in there about organizing. But it's like, how do people not know the name D-Hawk, the guy who invented the Visa network? Right? How is he not? How are how it's it's like, wow, talk about something successful that like change the world and people don't know it's because he's such such a rebel and people will get immediately why like the bankers wouldn't want to tell you that this is the guy who invented this. <laughs> so but the the reason why the it's a, it's a great book the reason why i bring this up is because while we you know we talked about we want to build 
things that these that um, fiat can't do, right? So we want to do things that fiat can't do. We want to do things that the credit card networks can't do. But there's a corollary to that as well, that not only do we want to build things that they can't do, but we also need to make sure that we can do all of the things that it can do. So with fiat, yes, that's true. With credit cards, there is an important economic function that they provide, crucially important, that actually no one has been able to solve on with Bitcoin. And I don't think anybody has even really thought about it very much. I've thought about it a lot, but I don't think a lot of people have. And that is doing holds, deposit holds of funds. So if you go and you rent a hotel room, if you go and you do a rental car, any kind of rental, right? Um, Even with um, utilities, very often the utilities will be like, oh, let me check your credit. Oh, we're going to need a deposit from you to to start up your new utility or whatever. And it's usually something like a month in advance or whatever. But this could even be rent, right? We would generally do like a a check deposit that it's there. That's generally with fiat, but there's nothing saying, and that's basically because landlords don't have the same type of capability that a a Marriott or something has. Because otherwise they could be like, well, we'll just take a hold on your credit card then. And that's, that's, I I immediately, I already, I'm already seeing where you're going payment channels. And I, it's such an interesting in between state type of transactional stage that I use all the time and never really sat around and thought about the fact that my money is not your money yet, but my money is not accessible to me. It's in this sort of clearly defined purgatory state. It will return to me under certain conditions or go to you under certain conditions, but it's carved out. And when I go on my bank, I see this all the time, the pending versus the cleared. Now, sometimes that's just a delay of time, but those, but those holds, right? Those holds. And even they'll do this at like a, like a gas station because yeah, oh, they, sure. they don't know what the total amount's going to be. You scan your card and it will immediately say $1 charged at this gas station. Or when you pay at a coffee shop, and then you add, it makes sure your credit card works, it charges it, but then you add a tip. And so it's holding it until it gets the final, that in-between state, I have only ever thought of that in terms of the inconvenience provided by lack of instant settlement and not thought of it in terms of the benefits and convenience provided by maintaining an intermediate state between settled and unsettled. That's it's right. And so that describes... So Lightning Network is a bastardization of the idea of payment channels. Satoshi was the first one to come up with payment channels to answer this problem. Lightning takes payment channels and uses payment channels in a way that they should not be used. And thus people have gotten a terrible idea about what payment channels are. Like if I want to just send money for me to you and I want it to go instantly, why the hell would I pull it out into this intermediate state first, right? Let's That's- talk about it. Let's talk about it. Right. Go Let's ahead. Talk about the applications. Let's talk about the application. So the most obvious application, um, and, and this is this is something that I've built little toy models of to where um, and this is probably just me coming from Vegas, but where we're talking billions of dollars a day are in these states is uh, gambling machines. That basically if you wanted to do um, some form of 
gambling, let's say you want to do blockchain gambling that looks like a slot machine, for instance, you're going to need to have a payment channel. So basically, we start, uh, what is a payment channel? A payment channel is an escrow, where basically two parties escrow funds, and then the, there's a, a it's very interesting the way that this happens. I won't get into the technical aspect of how it happens, but what it allows is for us to do a series of transactions, an infinite number of transactions, where in this series of transactions, we change the balance between the two of us. So you imagine like a slot machine. In the situation of a slot machine, I put in a dollar, I escrow a dollar, and the gaming operator escrows whatever the maximum amount that I could possibly win off a dollar is right? Or some large amount. So then I play and it's like, oh, I won $2. Now it changes. Now I have three. Now the balance goes up to three for me and three are taken out of them, right? Nothing has happened on chain. And we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I play all this time. I play a million times. And then we have a final state and we can either both agree on settlement or we can walk away. And the way that this works is that the final state, a time comes and Anyone can spend the final state. One of us could spend the final state. Boom, we're done. Very secure. And we can move this back and forth between one another. So in, the, in no, this with case. No fees, with no, with, with no on-chain fees. But if the, let's say the on-chain fees are a thousandth of a penny. They're so small that it doesn't matter. Yes. Right? So like this, this feels like a, uh, it's a solution for fees that are high. And if fees are not high, is, is there a use case? Oh, no, 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 no. Is there a use no, case? Well, no. It's the, the use case is specifically for tiny payments. Okay. Why do I say that? Because if we're doing this back and forth, and every single time we've got to pay a thousand, a thousandth of a cent, well, that's still, it's a cent if we do it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And that and the profit margins on a tiny payment situation might be one cent. Yep. It might be one cent for every series that I have. Oh, OK, OK. I see. I see now. So so in this case, you're describing and I'm sure there's cases I can't think of. It's not even so much that the, the player, the consumer themselves would give a shit. But That's if there's right. a business, if I'm running it and I say I can let you do this and every time you're on chain, and every time it's a thousandth of a penny and you do it a thousandth less. Of a penny, right? Or I can split it off into a payment channel. You're going to pay the same, but I'm, I'm only doing one thousandth of a penny transaction every day. And That's I'm right. taking the other 900. Yeah, 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 yeah. For me, for me. So this is why I said to you that when you play the scenario out, that you, it's not, and you just, you directly addressed it. There's no ideological thing here. There's no nothing. It's just simply, I'm a business and I have two options. Either I make the penny on that or I give the penny to the miners. Yep. Which one do I take? Yep. And it's not a large hurdle in terms of a technical hurdle to implement the payment channels, especially if I control the wallet, which more and more we're seeing that's the case with these applications, web-based wallets and whatnot, right? Even if it's non-custodial. If I control the wallet, it's a little extra work for me to make that. So eventually the entire, if we're going to do tiny payments, all the businesses are going to go to payment channels. What is the app? What is the application that I see immediately where this would be the case, right? Video on demand. This is the most obvious one. Okay. Where I'm like, okay, I want to watch this video. 
and the video on demand, uh, you know, company is like, okay, it's, um, you know, it's, you've got to escrow the full amount for the video, but if you don't watch the, but it's by the minute, if you don't watch the, so every minute we're going to change the state of the payment channel, right? You're going to pay in. And if you don't watch all the way through, you can go ahead and after the expiration date, you can go ahead and redeem back and you don't pay the full amount. You paid by the minute, but you had to escrow the full amount, right? Or we could just decide to settle out. You could say, I don't like this movie. And they settle out with you and they're like, okay, good, you're done. Your rental's done and you paid by the minute, yep. right? Yep. And one transaction. So I, I could see, um... I can see some really interesting dynamics emerging here where if you're a miner and you're like, Hey, these guys are taking all my transactions. Uh, <clears throat> now I've got to come up with a way. If I, if I want more of those on chain, I've got to offer something special. I got to say, Hey, look, let me cut a deal with you. You do a lot of transactions. You don't need to build and maintain your own payment channel. I'll make a special deal with you. If you do more on chain, I get 5% more. And you don't have to do all this dev call, whatever, like just the competition itself, the ability to, to go directly on chain if you want to, because the fees are low enough, or at least miners theoretically can make them low enough or to make payment channels. And then from the consumer side, if as a consumer, if there's some added friction, if I say, well, when I'm using your app with my, you know, Bitcoin wallet or whatever it is, uh, but then I want to go and use a different app. You make me wait until you settle. If there's any delay or there's any friction with that, which I have found when I've used the Lightning Network before, there is like a, a, a good bit well, of friction. With this, there would be no friction. Because that so settled, from the user standpoint, it would feel indistinguishable from when I interact directly on chain. From the user standpoint, it is 100% indistinguishable. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 100%. And the, the, only, the only difference is if for some reason our communication between one another gets completely like if for some reason we have an open payment channel and I disappear off the face of the earth, yeah, you know that you can still settle your payment channel, but you're going to have to wait. Yep. But in 99.9999999 and because I'm trying yep. to stay up, right? <laughs> like I'm right. trying to stay up. And here's the other thing. I don't get to collect profits until the settled transaction goes on. Yep. So I want to, my incentive is to to put it on chain because I, I have also escrowed funds, yeah, right? Or I don't get to collect your funds, even if I haven't escrowed the funds. Well, you know what's funny about, <clears throat> one of the reasons I haven't looked too deeply into payment channels is because thinking of them purely as a solution to unnecessarily high on-chain fees, you run into this weird thing where you're like, yeah, but I still gotta open and close them. And, <clears throat> You want the on-chain fees to be really, really low. And if they are, then the experimentation with payment, then payment channels actually get interesting because now mm -hmm. it's really easy to play around with them and experience, experiment with them and open them and close them and try versus yep. like, oh, this is all really high stakes stuff, right? Yep. Um, okay, so, so give me a, <clears throat> I'm trying to think through here like, I, I get, it's funny. I think I've been thinking of this. Uh, this, is a, this is a tendency I have. I tend to think of things from the, the end user, the consumer, the customer good, standpoint. Good, Even though good. I'm a businessman, I'm oh, usually putting myself in the shoes of the customer so much so that I miss. I'm like, well, why would a customer care about payment channels? It doesn't matter if they do. If a business can, can take those fees and compete with miners and say, nope, I'm going to have a channel. I'll take the fees. Um, 
with okay so from my understanding with the lightning network because i remember talking to some some developers who were trying originally to build some different mm -hmm. applications on there that um yours.org originally they attempted to use the lightning network which was like a it was like a like a medium or something where you post articles and you can like them and all of those are on chain and there's tiny payments involved send a penny whatever and they were like you had to you basically you had to leave you had to leave the thing running all the time and you and you had the obviously you had the cost of closing an opening there just seemed to be a lot of problems. There was routing problems. Now, maybe that was because it wasn't large enough and there weren't enough channels. Well, no, no, no. It, it, the routing problem is the entire problem that you're describing. It's also the okay. reason why you have to leave it open. Okay, See, break the, that down for me from a non, as a non-tech guy. Give me the, sure. the idiot's version. Sure. So the idea of a payment channel is, is a, a change in balance between two parties. Two parties, yep. just two that have a direct connection to one another. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, continue, they're continue. Chaining. They're, the idea of Lightning Network is, I'm going to chain these payment channels, and so we're gonna change it between these two, and then change it between these two, and these two, and eventually it gets changed between you and the guy you're connected to. Yes. But you're not directly connected to the person who sent it to you. That's and the Rube Goldberg nature. That's the Rube Goldberg. Right. Right. So they're taking a useful, <laughs> thing, a useful idea, this payment channel, and we've already described like why you might use a payment yep. channel. Here's the applications, why you might want to use them. Also, the deposit, yep. right? The deposit hold. We're going to take this deposit, your rental car, right? Yep. We're going to take this deposit. And then when we pay, you basically pay out of the deposit. Yep. So you know, it's funny. A, a lot of people kind of poke fun at, um, Adam Back, the, the the main guy at Blockstream, when he was when fees started going high, and he said, "Well, you'll have tabs, tabs like a bar tab, right?" And there and there's and there's things to poke fun of there. Um, it's kind of like a wow, that's it, that's your solution. But it's funny if it were just bar tabs. There's reason. There are ways where that's great, right? You go to the bar, you actually like that. Here, start a tab. Now you and I have a payment channel that's open, mm -hmm. and when I'm done and I'm ready to settle, I'll settle. What's weird about the Lightning Network, it'd be like, okay, start a bar tab. Then every time I get a drink, it's charged to the next guy's bar tab. Exactly. And, and then his is charged to the next guy's. And then like, we're all, right, we're all playing this game of making sure each of us have enough stuff in our tab. And then when I close, you know, it's like, well, why don't we just do it directly? Isn't there like, you payment channels can be peer-to-peer -peer as well, right? No, they are peer-to-peer. And as a matter of fact, payment channels are more peer-to-peer -peer than most people's Bitcoin transactions. Yeah. Because in most cases with your Bitcoin transaction, I don't send you the signed transaction and then you broadcast it in almost all cases. With you, I send it uh, like you're like, let, I'm, I say, let me send you some Bitcoin out of my wallet. I broadcast it. I broadcast mine probably to the wallet's API and then the wallet broadcasts it to a node or broadcast it to their own node. And then you see it on the blockchain. Okay, with the payment channel, we actually have to have a direct connection to one another, whether that's through Bluetooth, whether that's through a, a WebSocket, whether that's through something like WebRTC that is directly peer to peer. It's incredibly fast, right? It's super, super fast. Nobody sees it, it's incredibly private. Nobody sees it except for us, mm. right? But, but now you see why you have to remain online because in order for that to happen, your connection has to exist between that peer that's trying to, to make you as a link in the chain. Yep. If you're not there, they can't change the balance with you because it's a direct peer-to-peer -peer connection.
Got it. So, so that has some restrictions on certain, certain use cases. If sure. that connection has to remain open. Um, well, it, now, I don't know it, what that means. It, it, can it, it, can it, it just run in the background? Yeah, in the background is fine. It only has to remain like that you could reestablish a connection. So like okay. in, the, in the case of a, look, in the case of a, a streaming service, if you've got your wallet on the site and the site is running, cool, you've got a connection. You already have a connection. You're streaming data back and forth. Okay, cool. The connection is there. It could even, uh, so like HLS is a, a streaming format. Some people may have seen, seen this, if, and if they don't know, it's like, it basically chunks up files into a bunch of different files. And then, so that's how it's streaming. It's an Apple streaming format for MP4. You could actually just attach on the payment channel aspect to each one of these. So if you want the next one, if you want to get served the next one, you actually have to, in, you could do it in the headers, you could do it in your request when you get the other one. It's all in the background. So, so it can, so it can potentially the, the, the sort of ledger could continue to, let's say my connection is severed between you and you and I have something going. And then it'd be like the old days when I log back onto the internet and it exactly. says I've got emails that were waiting for me. It, it exactly. brings those down. So the, the, the record could be maintained and then it's resynced sure. at that point. Okay. So what are the custodianship implications here? So let's say I'm building an app and I want to do this. Uh, I want to say, I'm going to let people do all this. So I'm going to set up a payment channel. So like right now, let's say I've got an app where everybody can go and, and press a button and pay 10 cents to do something. And then they do um, something that some companies like uh, Haste and others in BSV are doing. A, um, they call it a, a leaderboard, instant leaderboard payout. They got some acronym. So I, I make the leaderboard for playing some game. And now everybody that plays the game and pays 10 cents, I get a fraction of their 10 cents. And so they're never, they never hold the funds. They're not sending me a reward. They don't hold the funds at all. In that case, if they spun up a payment, it would be a series of payment channels, I guess, with every time a player went to pay, it would go from them to the other. Is there any custodianship implications there, right? Are they, are they somehow holding the money in some legal sense? Uh, so payment channels are... There's a couple ways to do them. So the traditional way, how it's done on Bitcoin, BTC, and how it would probably be done on BSV is using a multi-signature, uh, traditional multi-sig okay. uh, wallet. Um, there, you could probably find some other cool ways to, to do it on BSV that would require, they would be longer. It would require, require a lot more in terms of the, the transaction size because the script sig that you would write would be longer. Um, on BCH and eCash, you can actually do this with um, covenants like op object data sig. And one of the cool things about that is that you can write in, you can do this potentially on BSV too, um, is that you can write in, it would be, take a lot, it, it takes a lot more code to do it, but you can, you can write in a fee, like a fee output. You can demand that a fee output, even to a percentage is put in there that's completely non-custodial to some third party or an affiliate or whatever. You could even write that has to be part of the payment channel back and forth. Um, so. Like, I don't know, I don't know the exact uh, application that you would want to do, but what I would say is you don't want to, to chain payment channels. Like you really don't want to do that. I see. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've got those, form, yeah, those complicated, you know, uh, a 10 cent transactions being split between all these different parties and stuff like that, that may not be the best use of a Oh payment. no, you could, you could still do that. Like you could, you could, that could be part of the transaction itself. As long right? as those so were all direct channels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, if you wanted to pay, if you're like, okay, when this is settled, what we know is that 10 different individuals get paid out of this as well. Yep. yep. 
that's actually part, so long as it's between the two of them as they start, I understand what you're saying. So it's like when it's done, when it's done, everybody on the leaderboard gets some. Right, right. So that's, that's built into the payment channel to start. So yeah. how you could imagine this is, imagine it as like a single transaction and so, so I'll, I'll try to make like a, a basic explanation of, of how this works. There's a, an idea of doing time locks in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And the best way for people to think about a time lock is something like a post-dated check. Yep. So it's to say, here's this transaction. It's totally valid, but no mining node will accept it until X block yes. or X time has expired, right? So what you basically do, it's very interesting. So this is time lock, time lock cash contracts yeah. or... Um, time lock payment channels. So what I do is we make a transaction. This is the deposit that's going to start us out. And we put a time lock on it that's like way in the future or as far into, relatively far into the future, okay? It's a valid transaction. But what this means is, okay, if we both walk away right now, the person who's got the better side of this deal can wait until that and spend it. So at least we know the money's there, okay? So we're, we're good in that department. Um, what we, what we then do as we're, as we're you know, going along down this process is every single time that we make a change the state, we basically make a post-dated check that's sooner. Each time it's sooner, 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 and they all cancel each other out. Yeah. So we get, down, we get down here to the one that's closer to us settling, and we both walk away, and it settles like on the next block from now. I'm going to grab that. I'm going to spend it on the next block. It just voided all of this history here. None of those can be spent, even though they're valid signatures and all of it. It voided it because that would be a double spend. Yep. Right. So, so what you do when you create your first post-dated thing is you just add in all of those. And, and again, like I say, you can do this with covenants to where you can actually say it has to be a certain percentage of the total. So add up the total of the first two outputs. And then this is 5%. This is 1%, this is 3%, this is 2%, whatever, to these addresses. And you build that all. And then every single time, all you do is you change the balance of these two between yeah. one and the top two. The rest stays the same. And you just boom, 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 boom. And then when we finally settle, it all goes out to the leaderboard. Yep. And, you, and you take some of those sweet, sweet fees that we're going to go to the miners instead. Um, That's it. Okay, so... I mean, I feel like we could go on for forever. I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna have to have you come back on again another sure, time. Sure, sure. Um, you are currently working on eCash, which is uh, Bitcoin Cash had a further split, and mm -hmm. eCash is it was sort of like rebranded as as eCash, but it's it's essentially from the Bitcoin Cash protocol with some different changes. Um, what? Just give me like a quick nutshell pitch for why you like working with that protocol for for building things. You know, if if you were if someone's interested in building micropayments things, why is eCash a good choice in your mind? So, uh, just in general, it's uh, it was the fork. Uh, so basically, Bitcoin ABC broke off. Yep. And so, for people who don't know, Bitcoin ABC is a, is was the development group and Amri Sachet are the ones who had been shepherding uh, Bitcoin Cash through this whole time. And BSV's code, if you go and you look at the GitHub for BSV, if they still have open sourced it, I don't know if they still open sourced their node or if they closed sourced it at this point. But if you go and look, uh, you're gonna see dead all mix on there as tons of it. So BSV is a fork of Bitcoin ABC. Yep. Uh, and the new, 
node, this Bitcoin Cash node is a fork of Bitcoin ABC. Basically what they added in was they added in uh, what's been maligned and called a tax. So essentially what they said was, well, we're going to uh, have a rule called the Coinbase rule that in order for, uh, for it to be a valid and accepted for Bitcoin ABC, now you can run another node, but if you run the Bitcoin ABC code as is, as they put it in there, uh, and you're a miner, 8% of the block reward has to go into this address for Bitcoin ABC, and that funds Bitcoin ABC. This has been done by other networks. Zcash is an example. It's been done. It's never been done on a Bitcoin network uh, proper, but I trust Bitcoin ABC. Great development group. I mean, it's been solid. And also those guys have fought two hash wars now because they fought one against BSV, and then they had to fight one to get out of, uh, to get out of the split with BCH where there's been a lot of uh, hash power and some talented people on the other side thrown behind it. And they've, they've come out of both of them basically as the, as the victors. So I trust that team in terms of being able to develop on it. But I, you know, I hadn't been developing on it. I've been sticking with B Bitcoin Cash, but there's a, a very cool uh, web wallet called CashTab that um, was moved over by uh, Joey King, who was somebody that I worked with a lot at Bitcoin.com. We were both there uh, there as contractors at the same time. Super talented developer, great wallet. It's like super Web3, very cool. I forked that and, and started working on it. But primarily, again, this is like the low fees thing. That if I've got to choose, so there's there's a, a lot of the applications that I use use a, uh, an op code. Uh, basically, it's a code in the Bitcoin scripting language that's called opcheck data sig. And it allows um, some really, really cool things. But one of the things that are, is most important is it allows the transaction to kind of look at itself in a nutshell. So it allows me to create a type of address that it says, you can spend out of this address, but only if like we said, these amounts of transactions exist in here to these particular addresses, and it's a percentage of this here. So I can basically force a feed yep. into an address, right? Anybody can spend it, but you're going to have to pay out like this. It also enables me to do all kinds of things like splitting within the address itself. So a covenant address that says anybody can spend from out of this address, but it has to go in this pro rata to all of the people in the leaderboard, for instance. Yep. Yep. And then we just paid a one fee address, right? These very, very useful things. Well, it only exists on Bitcoin Cash and eCash. So I just think that it's, I've done so much work on this escrow stuff and all kinds of, I've got um, a really cool thing that I'm, I'm about to release. It's very, very cool in terms of- uh, in terms uh, You're, you're going to soon us. <laughs> yeah, it's- uh, well, I can't. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to say it yet. But it's it's uh, it's very cool. We're doing we're doing our first uh, in store demo with the cannabis place here, um, here in Saipan on Monday. So it's it's going to solve a lot of problems that the cannabis industry has been having with the with banking and all of that. So so, so for the so for the non uh, and because it's <clears throat> my goal is to kind of keep it outside of the scope of this series to to get deep into like debates about. Uh, previous protocol wars and all that stuff, but to so sum low, up kind of your fees, e-cash, low yep. fees. It's yeah, got a low that's what I was going to say. To, to low price, low fees. <laughs> it's like, if, if you are really interested in, and this is kind of what, how I think about it, in micropayments and nanopayments yeah. use cases, then you want very, very low fees, which means mm -hmm. very, very large blocks. Uh, 
And we won't get into, you know, there's it does it doesn't mean very, very large blocks. It does. Well, it, it, it means, okay. Well, it means it means that miners have to be uh, willing to accept very low fees in the in the very least. And which like, is the reason why. So this is actually super important. I think this is because I know you have a BSV audience. So this is actually really, really super important for people to understand. What it means is available block space. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean the blocks have to be big because like on eCash right now, there's very little transaction volume. So meaning having a 32 meg block when you don't even have a megabyte right. worth of block right. space makes no sense, right? But the, the I guess that what I, the only reason I would say is if you're envisioning if you're envisioning a protocol that's going to be here for the long haul and that's going to get yes. a lot of use case, yeah. it needs the ability. If it's going to hit some ceiling and it can never get bigger than a hundred thousand users or something like that. But yep. yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good point though, that for, for right now today, if you want to build stuff, you need really low fees. And then the other things that considerations that it sounds like, you know, have led you to, to where you are in eCash is you want a protocol that's easy to work with, that's got some of these various, um, you know, some of these opcodes, for example, that lets you do a lot of really cool, that's programmable money, that's actually programmable, and you believe in the development community around it. Um, and the, and there, I think that the ethos of the development community, and the reason why I say that is, again, this goes back to my early experiences with Bitcoin BTC, is that it does, in, in a lot of ways, yes, competency of developers is a prerequisite. Like, I'm not going to work, I'm not going to build anything. Like, they got to be competent. But at the same time, it's that foresight thing. Yep. So where I'm going to look and I'm going to say, okay, what decisions are you making? And when I look at it and I say, oh, is that, does that decision make it harder for me to work on the chain? And especially, does that decision invalidate existing applications yes. that I've already built? So Huge that was risk something. If you're a builder, huge risk. That was something that happened with BSV. So BSV, they sunset um, a, a particular. It's called pay to script hash. They basically made pay to script hash not exist anymore. So what they did was they took all applications that were doing multi-signature at the time, all wallets, everything like that. If you were on BSV, you had to change all of your code. Otherwise, it just broke. It just broke right there. So those types of decisions where I'm like, whoa, you want me to build on your chain, but then you're going to make decisions that will break my application? Well, what a terrible decision for me to like, are you going to do that in the future too? Like, when are you going to do this? Right? And I know that there's an idea of like, no, it's set in stone. It'll never be changed. And I'm like, eh. Uh, I'll try, I, I would rather have something that was changed all the time, but was changed in ways that didn't break the existing things. The, the, I mean, so that's, that's the thing with software. And I talked about this in my previous episode. It's like a constitution. Just because you wrote it down doesn't mean it can't be changed. And correct. so what you have to look at is what are the beliefs and incentives facing the people who have the power to change right. it? Correct. And Whichever one of those I have the most confidence in as a business. I mean, you have this risk all the time, right? I have a company that we have, we're built in uh, JavaScript and, and React. And I right. got to know that they're not going to make some radical change to the way that JavaScript is maintained that screws over my whole business. And I, I'm pretty confident in the incentives that they face and the community around them and the pressure put on them by developers, including my own, 
that that's, that that's a risk that's an acceptable level of risk, right? That's kind of the world that you live in. You don't live in a world where you're like, oh, don't worry about it. It was written down. It won't be changed, right? And no. I think that's a myth that both BTC and BSV can kind of fall into. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I love that. I think, you know, if I'm, I'm coming at this in this series, especially, I'm really like, look, I don't care. And I'm not technical enough to, to give a shit, frankly. I don't care what the, what the protocol is. I, I care about the problem. I think as a consumer, I care about what problems can be solved with micropayments and whatever does that best. Let's mm-hmm. talk about it. Let's see how people are doing it. Let's, let's explore what's going on. Um, well, and, and I, I think just, there I will be the, some applications. I think there will be some applications where each of the chains, I think there, there's right now, there's very little difference between uh, BCH and eCash in terms of what it provides. But I think that there will definitely be applications just because I can't like think about them right now, yep. but I can almost guarantee that there will be applications when what BSV is offering is superior to what would be offered by those other two chains. Sure. Um, and I don't think that it's for the reasons that are touted as the value propositions by any of the chains. Because yep. for me, those aren't any of my, all the things they're talking about is not any of my value propositions. And, and you don't, and you don't, you're not one of these, um, look, it's going to be one chain to rule them all in the end, people. It's already not one chain to rule them all. Right. I mean, you, right. you can fork at any time. But just wait long enough and it will all eventually be one. You, you don't, you don't buy that argument. It, well, it's impossible. That's not the, it's not the nature of things. I mean, um, you know, one of these, if one of these business get, businesses gets big enough and it comes down to the minor fees that they are paying would be less than what they would earn if they were, or less than, you know, the capital outlay, even if they were to mine the chain, mine a chain by themselves, weighing out how much hash power they would need to stay secure, this business risk again. And then, you know, just looking, it's the same reason why Facebook builds its own data centers. Yeah. Like, eventually these businesses are going to get so big where it's going to be like, Oh, we're using BSV now. Uh, we'll just mine it ourselves. Fork it. It's our own thing. We don't have to change any of our code. Nothing changes. The security doesn't change. And we'll just take our capital. And instead of having worrying about those miners or mining the BSV chain, we'll mine our own chain. And why would I believe that that would happen? Well, because that's how BSV was created. And it, yeah, right. It's already Sorry, happening. The right? I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the belief, the belief in this sort of one chain world, um, it strikes me a little. I mean, I'm not close to the possibility that someday the economic incentives align so that it just doesn't make sense and one chain eats them all. Okay, maybe. But it, I feel like it requires a lot of very simplistic um, economic modeling that doesn't take into account like you know, it's, it's ceteris paribus and the world isn't ceteris paribus, mm-hmm. right? You, you can come mm-hmm. up with your game theoretical explanation for how it will all consolidate to one chain for efficiency's sake or whatever. But how do you explain the current reality then? Like that model failed to explain where we are in 2022. Um, so where are we going to be in 20? And I don't have time. If I'm building something today, I don't have time to wait for that world. And I don't want to have to pick, now we need it. pick the one chain that I think is going to be the only surviving chain in 30 years. I just need something that works right now to solve my problem. And there's a couple options to choose from, at least a couple. I'm going to talk to some people about Solana. Some people have been coming to me, talking to me about Dash and Nano. I don't know about a lot of these. I know a little bit, but I think it's like, look, if you're building something to solve a problem, you don't, startups that start with the solution usually fail. Hey, I've got this really cool solution. Where do I point it? 
No, you could start with a problem. Here's a problem. Now, what kind of tech do I need to solve it, right? Whatever the answer is, get that answer. So, um, okay. Yeah, so I've said for a long time, Isaac, I've said for a long time in this space, um, I actually caught, you know, back in the, the, the sort of BCH, BSV before the split with Cointext when I was like, I'm going to go uh, multi-coin and just we're going to give it a shot. Why did I say that? Because the back end to do what we did on Litecoin Dash, BTC, it's literally one line of maybe maybe five lines of code to change because they it's a for, they're all forks of Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. So it's just like it, it's it was for us. It was like, oh, there's no risk. Let's just fire up a number. It costs us a couple bucks. And we'll just we'll just do this. And all the things that came down from the people who later became BSV and even Craig Wright saying, were he to do that? This is a tweet from Craig Wright. Were he to do that? Two weeks later, we would have 10 competitors. Blah, blah, blah. Obviously, there were no, we did it. No competitors ever happened, of course, because that's just the, the, the nature of that man. But entrepreneurs don't have the luxury of playing ideological games about it's got to be this chain, it's going to be this chain. Like, we shouldn't be, especially as entrepreneurs, if we're not miners, it, it also doesn't make a lot of sense for us to be holding. That's not, that's not how it works, okay? Yeah. We shouldn't be crypto holders. We earn crypto, okay? Like we earn it. Most entrepreneurs, most businesses don't have crazy reserves. No, can you, can you imagine a normal business being like, okay, I'm a B2B company, but I want my customers to pay me in stock in their company and I'm going to hold that. And then I'm, that's part of my business model that what I receive, my accounts payable are coming in the form of speculative assets. And I hope that those go up in addition to, you know, it's like, <laughs> very dumb. No, 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 no business is going to run that way. So I think, and, but this is very hard to explain to people because so few people in this space are entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurial spirit of this space is lackluster at best. And a lot of it is just because the smart people, especially smart young men, are being led down the wrong path. And to say, oh, how you get rich in Bitcoin is you, you hodl. Yep. And I would say, look, man, I got to tell you, I earn my income in crypto and have for many, many years. And what I will tell you is, the amount of money that I would have, the amount of coins that I would have had to be holding to have made the re equivalent return on my initial investment that I have made in the last year in what I've earned in crypto would be extraordinary. And guess what? I didn't have to have any startup capital to do that. I just had to build businesses. And, and smart young men and women, but you know, that this is for better or worse, it's primarily a man's game, the, the entrepreneurial thing, just more men tend to be pushed in that direction. That's what I would hope is to get more, more young people or just young at heart interested yes. in the idea that like we can, you can make money in this space hand yes. over fist. Without and that's what, that's what excites me. Like, I mean, that's how I'm wired. My, my, you know, one of the things that I always end up doing and my businesses are built around is helping people discover and do what makes them come alive. And to me, it's, it's deeper than even just the money returns. It's like, man, we're, we're wired to do cool stuff, to create value, to do something real. And there's more just the, the meaning gained and feeling like you're doing something and you're earning your, your, your keep by putting something out there in the world and solving problems for people. That's something you can't replace with sitting on a stash and, a, and putting a JPEG on your profile picture, right? Like, 
you know, you can only degen so hard and to, you're not going to, you're still going to be looking for some meaning if you're not creating some value. And I'm, and I'm not, you know, trying to get overly judgy or anything. Like there's, there's a lot of fun to be had and there's, there's some value hidden in a lot of that hype and ridiculousness, but I, I just like those fads come and go and the prices come and go. You could see that right now. Prices, plummet, oh, yeah. price. But what you have control of all the time is what you're doing productively each day. And are you helping people solve problems that they're willing to pay you for? And can you use that money to increase your quality of life, your flexibility, your freedom? And, you know, um, and there's so much opportunity here. And that's why I want to really narrow down and say, forget the speculative stuff and all that. Let's talk about what you can do with tiny payments. So I'm going to end it with a question that I want to end with everybody. It's just the title of this series to you, Cyprian. Why are tiny payments a big deal? Tiny payments are, are a big deal because it allows us to change our entire understanding of the scope of the economy. It allows us to open up entire, an entire range of the economy that exists below a dollar and exists below a cent. And who, it unlocks human creative capability to start doing what we're doing here and thinking about well, what could I do? We've got, you know, we're always on. We're on these things and we're always on. We've got tons of data moving back and forth and back and forth. And it's like, what could we do where innovative individuals could find a way to create value out of this stuff that's just sitting there, out of this energy that's being spent, out of this data that's being moved, there's an immense amount of value that could be unlocked. And it's potentially like a new industrial revolution if it can be figured out. And tiny payments are all about that. And only Bitcoin can do it. Man, I love that. I love that. You, you all of a sudden popped into my head when you're saying that, that phrase that's very popular, uh, you know, data is the new oil. And if you use that analogy and think like it is, except we're all producing it all the time, but it's in a market where you can only sell oil by the 50 gallon drum and we're producing it in drops all the time. What if you could, what if you could now sell it by the drop? Right. Um, like the, it's just, it's just such a, such a game changer. This has been absolutely awesome. Um, I, I think as I work through this series more, we might have to, we might have to revisit and get you back on here again. And, uh, and you and I might be due for another broader ranging philosophical, uh, conversation about who knows what. So, um, thanks so much. Anywhere you want to point people uh, to find you Twitter or anywhere else. Sure. If people are interested in, in learning more of these concepts uh, about Bitcoin, and again, this translates to all of Bitcoin, BSV, BTC, BCH, Ecash, Litecoin, Zcash, whatever you're into. If you want to know the background, the philosophy, all of this, uh, Bitcoin Mystery School, we're over it. We've been doing this every month for over a year. It's only 20 students per class. People love it. And from there, there's further classes if you want to get into coding Bitcoin and doing all of that. So BitcoinMysterySchool.com, as we're recording this right now, the March uh, March registration is open. And then um, I did talk about CounterMarkets. So countermarkets.com, you can go and check out. That's our newsletter. We, it's been going for about five years. We talk a lot Great about cryptocurrency. Yeah, thank you. But uh, also a, just a lot about kind of underground economies, parallel economies, all the things that were that are important right now. So countermarkets.com, you can get your first issue for free. And then follow me on Twitter, at Cyprianus. Love it. Thanks so much, man. Till next time. Thank you, brother. See you.